Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 17, Judges chapters 10 and 11. Well, this week we begin a three-chapter series on the exploits of a fellow named Yiftach, or better known in the English Bibles as Jephthah. And we finished up our last lesson by briefly discussing two of the five so-called minor judges, Tola and Yair. Now, the main reason these judges are called minor is because almost nothing is recorded about them. So apparently, as compared to the seven Shofet judges, who have reasonably extensive narratives in this book, explaining their actions and purposes, these five were simply not as important. The five minor judges lived either before or possibly even during this same time as this man we're going to study, Yiftach. And Yiftach's era of operation is actually towards the end of the almost four centuries long period of the time called the Judges. Now hopefully it's becoming clear to everyone that the time of the Judges was a time of transition for Israel. Okay. And, and the transition I'm referring to was from a time when Israel operated under a typical Middle Eastern tribal structure in which every tribe sought mainly to take care for its own interests. And this is the time that began right after Joshua. To the time when Israel would recognize their need for a king and thus would operate more like a nation state. Now, transition periods within societies are in, invariably messy. Right? And, and, and they're uneasy times of turmoil and, and unrest. People instinctively feel uh, a sense of instability and of change. And, and further we see that these various judges were, that we're studying operated only in specified regions of Canaan with only some of the tribes involved in each case. Essentially, God was raising up judges to deal with some local problems. And usually these problems were centered on idolatry and then the oppression of a foreign government that came afterwards. Now, we also see that the period of the judges was sadly one of Israel's steadily declining morality and values and faithfulness to Jehovah. It was a period when their dedication to following God's commandments was replaced by a dedication to following some evolving mix of Torah and pagan religious practices and men's doctrines and then they would rationalize it all to fit with whatever their current wants and needs and societal conditions seem to dictate. You know, if we were to substitute American names and places for the Hebrew and Canaanite in this book, we would more easily see that the time of the judges is an eerie parallel all right, to the state of the world we're in today. Let's uh, begin by reading... Some, of Judge, some more of Judges chapter uh, 10, starting with verse 6. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's at page 284. Judges 10, starting in verse 6. We're going to read to the end of the chapter. Again, the people of Israel did what was evil from Adonai's perspective. They served the Baalim, the Baals, the Ashtaroth, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, the gods of the Philistines. They abandoned Adonai and did not serve him. So the anger of Adonai blazed against Israel. He handed them over to the Plishtim, right, the Philistines, and the people of Ammon. For 18 years starting that year, they oppressed and persecuted all the people of Israel who lived beyond the Jordan in the territory of the Amorites in Gilead. The people of Ammon also crossed the Jordan to fight Judah and Benjamin in the house of Ephraim so that Israel was greatly distressed. Then the people of Israel cried to Adonai, 
Oh, we have sinned against you by forsaking our God and serving the Baals. And Adonai said to the people of Israel, I saved you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the people of Ammon, and the Philistines, didn't I? Likewise, when the people of Sidon, Amalek, and Maon oppressed you, you cried out to me and I rescued you from their power. Yet, you abandoned me and you served other gods. Therefore, I will not rescue you anymore. Go and cry to the gods you chose. Let them rescue you when you're in trouble. The people of Israel said to Adonai, We have sinned. Treat us in whatever way seems good to you, but save us today, please. They got rid of their foreign gods and served Adonai, and he became troubled by Israel's misery. Then the people of Ammon gathered together and set up a camp in Gilead, while the people of Israel assembled and camped at Mitzpah. The people, the chiefs of Gilead, said to each other, Whoever leads the battle against the army of Ammon will be head over everyone living in Gilead. Verse 6 gives us a statement of the general condition of all of Israel, of all 12 tribes, in the time immediately following the death of the Shophet Yair. And, and that condition, unfortunately, is one of national apostasy and the adopting of other gods. You know, we've discussed at length that what was occurring in Judges was syncretism, the melding of. Uh, Canaanite pagan beliefs with the religion of the Hebrews. Some scholars have taken to call in this period of time the Canaanization of Israel. I think an apt description. Now sometimes, you know, it's kind of easy to forget how we've arrived at a certain destination when there was never an intent that we do so. And that was kind of Israel's situation at this time. Almost immediately upon Joshua's death, Israel somewhat imperceptibly started to water down God's instructions to rid the land of Canaan from, from pagans. And, and, and the Lord explicitly told Israel that they were to drive out or kill all who were dedicated to those mystery Babylon religions. And instead, Israel decided that peace and brotherly love was a better course of action. And that meant that they needed to find ways to get along with these pagans. And of course, that meant they had to, at the least, show respect and tolerance for these Gentiles' gods and their customs. You know, it's interesting that the wording the Bible used to introduce each of the cycles of the rebellion and apostasy that followed and that all precipitated the need for a judge to rise up, were usually the same. And we find them here at the beginning of this chapter. The people of Israel did what was wrong, what was evil, from God's perspective. From God's perspective are the operative words. That is, you know, there was quite a disconnect between how the people of Israel viewed their own moral and spiritual condition and how God viewed it. I wonder if ever in mankind's history people or a nation viewed their own actions as evil. I wonder if Israel ever thought that what they were doing while they were doing it was wicked and ungodly. From their perspective, they were doing right and good. But all too often from God's perspective, they were doing wrong. You know, humans have an amazing capacity to deny and rationalize our bad behavior. Or to even attribute to God things that we do even though He specifically prohibits them. And the way that happens is by slowly replacing or mixing God's word with our own thoughts and opinions. If a lie is told often enough and loud enough, eventually it's taken as truth and few even challenge it. You know, once a tradition, whether it's Christian, Jewish, or secular, is practiced long enough, 
how it came into being, what it actually was meant to symbolize, whether it's in harmony with God's will, none of that's even questioned anymore. Those who might be so bold as to challenge established doctrines and customs are seen as troublemakers, people who create disunity, maybe even as heretics. So there's always a great peer pressure within a community and a congregation of people to keep quiet, to put your brain in neutral, kind of coast along and go with the flow. You know, from God's perspective, the main evil that Israel was committing was worshipping other gods. And so we get a list here of the names of some of the other gods they were worshipping. Now, interestingly... Know that this list is not a hierarchy of gods. Instead, it's just a listing of the names of the chief gods worshipped by some of the nations that were located in and around Canaan. First, it says, the people of Israel served the two main gods of Canaan, of all Canaan, Baal and Ashtoreth. Second, they served the gods of neighboring nations, including Hadot, Baal, Moat, and Anat which were Syrian gods. They served the gods of Sidon, Sidon. The gods of the Moabites, their main god being Chemosh. The gods of Ammon, Molech, was their highest deity. The gods of the Philistines, Dagon, all right, and Baal. You know, what we have here is not an exhaustive list. It's just representative. Right? And I told you that verse 6 was speaking of an overall condition of Israel. So it's, it's not as though a single Israelite would worship all of these God, gods. It depended on where that person lived within Canaan. If he lived up north by Syria, he would be inclined to worship the Syrian god Moat. If he lived over towards the uh, west, next to the Philistines, he'd be exposed to their god Dagon, all right, and, and so on. And we get another key statement in verse 6 that's also easy to overlook. It says, They abandoned, they meaning Israel, abandoned Jehovah and did not serve him. Let's not get the idea that the Hebrews no longer worshipped Jehovah God of Israel. If you had accused them of such a thing, they would have vehemently denied it. In their misguided minds, they had in no way abandoned Jehovah. Most of them still celebrated Sabbath, observed the feasts, went to the wilderness tabernacle to specified times, offered up bird offerings, and so on. Rather, they worshipped the God of Israel and the gods of the local, local pagans as well, because that seemed to make sense to them. See, the problem is that God makes it very plain that we can't worship Him and something else. Any kind of mixing of our worship amounts to abandoning Him in His eyes. And His perspective of it is really all that matters, isn't it? The consequence of this was... That God's anger blazed up and he turned the Hebrews who lived on the west side of the Jordan in Canaan over to the Philistines to be oppressed. And the Hebrews on the east side of the Jordan, in the Transjordan it's called, were put under the oppression of the Ammonites. Now further, the Ammonites crossed over the Jordan and they fought against some of the southern tribes like Judah and Benjamin and even the, the, uh, the kind of the border northern tribe, uh, Ephraim. In other words, this cycle of sin and apostasy of Israel led to the most widespread simultaneous oppression at the hands of Gentile nations thus far for Israel. Well, the people of Israel may have had short memories, but they weren't stupid. So in their misery, in verse 10, they decided to turn to their last resort. And they cried out to God to save them from this awful situation. But the God who knows the heart condition of every man says, This time I'm not going to save you just because you ask. Scary thought. 
Okay. This period of intense tribulation upon Israel, it says, had gone on for 18 years before Israel finally began to look to God for help. And even when God's people finally looked to him for help, he saw that they weren't sincere. You know, it's pretty common among humans that we really don't want to change. We just want our circumstances to be different. More to our liking. Okay, so God says, well, since you enjoy serving the gods of your neighbors so much, then go to them and ask them to rescue you. I'm sure they'll help you. You know, we have an interesting lesson here for every believer, if we're willing to accept it. And the lesson is on the nature of confession and repentance. Crying out to God for help and mercy by itself has utterly no merit. And God will not pay any attention. Our relationship with Him must be on firm footing or He closes His eyes and ears to our pleadings. If our relationship with Him has been severely compromised, then action on our part, real change is required. Not a pitiful display of emotions or pious words. And the first action is to be confession on our part. Sincere confession. What's confession? Confession is agreeing with the Lord that we have broken His commandments and thus we've sinned against Him. Confession is humbly admitting that He's right and you're wrong. Confession is telling God what He already knows about you. But confession by itself isn't sufficient enough either. It must be followed by repentance. You know, repentance is not a promise or an intent to do better. Repentance is active change. But the change must be in accordance with God's laws, not in accordance with our sense of goodness or morality. Repentance is ceasing to do what is wrong in his eyes and instead doing what is right. How do we know which is which? Read the book. The entire book. Israel's response to God's refusal to help them is actually kind of funny if it weren't so sad and typical. They say to God, Oh, treat us in whatever way seems good to you, but save us today, please. See, that statement is the biblical version of, I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. God save me now and I'll give you this IOU. I'll start doing right later when it's more convenient. But God's a God of tough love. He wasn't going to rescue them until they turned from their wicked ways, discontinued their love affair with the Canaanite gods and turned back to Him in full devotion. The sad reality is that when we abandon God and we live a life compromised by evil, the day will come that we need Him And the God principle and pattern we see demonstrated here is that even after we confess our sin to Him, even after we begin the painful process of letting go of the evil in our lives, we're going to live by its earthly consequences, possibly for a long time. Only after Israel confessed, then demonstrated true repentance by getting rid of their foreign gods and returning to proper worship to Jehovah, did the Lord now look down upon his people in pity and respond. We cannot continue to wallow in the same sin whose consequence we want to be rescued from and expect God to act. Do you think it was a simple matter for Israel to divest themselves of those foreign gods? Think about the conditions. It would have created all sorts of serious social problems and family divisions. 
Not every Israelite would have agreed with this. Not everyone would have approached this new path to the same degree or in the, with the same enthusiasm. Not every person in a family would have been willing to change their theology. How do you suppose it went when a Hebrew man told his Canaanite business partner that he'd no longer acknowledge his gods? What do you think happened when the Israelites who lived in the mostly mixed ethnic villages that formed the land of Canaan announced that they weren't going to celebrate and participate in those celebrations to the pagan gods that were so much a part of their Canaanites' friends' lives? Folks, once we've wandered down that path of tolerance to evil, it's very difficult to turn around and climb back up to holy ground. Very hard. We're going to be accused of hypocrisy, intolerance, unkindness, ignorance, hatefulness, even heresy. Verse 17 now changes course. And it describes for us two armies. One was Israel's army, it really was a militia, who gathered at a place called Mizpah. And the other was Ammon's army, who assembled in Gilead, in the Transjordan. The time for confrontation between Israel and its eastern oppressor was at hand, but there was something missing. Israel didn't have a field general. So the chiefs of Israel sat in council and decided that in order to get a general that was capable of achieving victory, they're going to have to offer him something of value. And that something of value was that if this general they could find succeeded, he would become head over all the Israelites who lived in Gilead. It's in this area right here. Now notice that what these chief council chiefs had in mind this is critical wasn't a judge in fact it wasn't even a tribal leader first a judge, a shofet was a person raised up by God not a person chosen by men they understood that a judge ruled by divine fiat not by any kind of human agreement second, Gilead was not a um, an allotted tribal territory. In other words, Gilead wasn't one of those 12 well-defined districts that had been assigned by Moses and Joshua to one or the other of the 12 tribes. Okay? Rather, this was a kind of a political region set up by men. The, these men who formed the military general search committee could use the term head or chief when describing the position that this candidate would assume if he was victorious. But you know what? In reality, they all knew that this person was going to be a king. That's what he was really going to be. Let's turn now to Judges chapter 11 and continue with Jephthah's story. Judges chapter 11. Now, Yiftach, a brave soldier from Gilead, was the son of a prostitute. And his father, Gilead, had other sons by his wife. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Yiftach away. And they told him, you will not inherit from our father, because you're another woman's son. Then Yiftach fled from his brothers and lived in the territory of Tov, where he enlisted a gang of rowdies who would go out raiding with him. And after a while, the people of Ammon made war against Israel. And when the army of Ammon attacked Israel, the leaders of Gilead went to fetch Yiftach from the territory of Tov and said to him, Look, come and be our chief so that we can fight the army of Ammon. And Yiftach answered the leaders of Gilead, um, Didn't you hate me so much that you forced me out of my father's house? Why are you coming to me now when you're in trouble? The leaders of Gilead replied, well, here's why we've come back to you. If you lead us in war with the people of Ammon, you will be the head over everyone living in Gilead. And Yiftach answered them, If you bring me back home to fight the army of Ammon and Adonai defeats them for me, I will be your head. And the leaders of Gilead said to Yiftach, Adonai is witness 
that we promise to do what you have just said. Then Yiftach went with the leaders of Gilead and the people made him head and chief over them. Yiftach repeated all of these conditions at Mitzpah in the presence of Adonai. Well, Yiftach sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon to say, What's your problem with us? Why are you invading our territory? And the king of Ammon answered the messengers of Yiftach, Because Israel took away my territory when they came up from Egypt. They took everything from the Arnon to the Yabok and to the Jordan. Now restore it peacefully. Yiftach sent messengers again to the king of the people of Ammon with his response. Here is what Yiftach has to say. Israel captured neither the territory of Moab nor the territory of the people of Ammon. But when Israel came up from Egypt, walked through the desert to the Red Sea and arrived at Kadesh, then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom to say, please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom wouldn't let them. He sent a similar message to the king of Moab, but neither would he, so Israel stayed at Kadesh. Then they walked through the desert and they walked around the territory of Edom and the territory of Moab, past the east border of the territory of Moab, and pitched camp on the other side of the Arnon. But they didn't cross the border into Moab, because uh, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, and king of Heshbon with this message. Please, just let us pass through your land to our own place. But Sihon didn't trust that Israel would only pass through his land, so he gathered all his people together, pitched camp at Yahatz, and fought against Israel. Adonai, the God of Israel, handed Sihon and all of his people over to Israel, and they killed them. Thus Israel possessed all the, of the, uh, all the territory of the Amorites who lived there. They took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Yabok, from the desert to the Jordan. So now that Adonai, the God of Israel, has expelled the Amorites before his people of Israel, do you think he's now going to expel us? You should just keep the territory your God Kamosh gave you. While we, for our part, will hold on to whatever Adonai, our God, has given to us the lands that belong to others before us. Really, are you better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever pick a quarrel with Israel or fight with us? Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, in Aroer and in its villages, and in all the cities of the banks of the Arnon for 300 years. Why didn't you take them back during that time? No, I've done you no wrong, but you're doing me wrong to war against me. May Adonai be the judge. May Adonai the judge be judged today between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the people of Ammon paid no attention to the message Yiftak sent him. We'll stop here for today. This chapter of Judges contains an enormous amount of information that might seem tedious to all but historians. But you know what? It really helps us to understand why certain decisions were made if we'll just take the time to digest what's recorded here. Also, it is here that we find the very controversial matter we haven't read it yet of Jephthah making a vow to God that ended up with a horrible unintended consequence. The sacrifice of his daughter. Now I say this is controversial because what actually happened has been hotly debated within Christian circles and Jewish circles to a lesser degree for a long time. With strong sentiment on both sides of the argument, we'll join that fracas in due time. Now, while the aforementioned incident of Jephthah making this rash vow to concern his daughter is usually the focal point of the Bible study for the, of a Bible study for this chapter. If we look closely at this chapter, we'll see that, that, that there's actually another and perhaps more important issue that's being dealt with. An issue that has profound implications in our current era. That issue concerns the claims of Israel's neighbors on the land that God gave to Israel through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But first, this chapter introduces us to Yiftach, Jephthah. And verse 1 says that Yiftach was a brave soldier, but he was also the son 
of a prostitute. His father was a Hebrew man, Gilead, who had sired other sons as well by means of his legal wife. Presumably she was a Hebrew. But when Gilead's other sons grew up, they drove Yishtak away because they didn't want to share their family inheritance with him. Now let's immediately clear up some erroneous doctrine about Yishtak. First, he indeed was an illegitimate child of Gilead. He was a bastard son born to his prostitute mother. The Hebrew words say that he was born to an Ishasha Zona. Ishasha Zona. Ishasha means female woman. Zona means one who commits fornication, a harlot, a prostitute. Some rabbis have made it a tradition that she was actually Gilead's concubine. That's false. There's no hint of such a thing, and this was only arrived at to try to find merit for Yiftach that he wasn't due, because we're going to find some later biblical passages according him a lot of honor. Zonah is the common Hebrew word for prostitutes. It's not used in any other way. Jephthah's mother was a prostitute, not a concubine. Now sadly, it wasn't all that uncommon for a man in that era to produce illegitimate children with a prostitute. Usually the father had little or nothing to do with that illegitimate child if it could even be conclusively proved that that prostitute's child belonged to a certain man. And just as certainly, that man had no interest in legitimizing that child. Now, but what's also demonstrated here is that prostitution was common. And even leading men of Israel partook of these women rather routinely. Okay? There was no social stigma for having sex with a harlot while being married even. Even among the Hebrews. That ought to give us some insight as to just how low Israel had sunk by this time. But it was also not something, this dealing with a prostitute, that was openly discussed. It wasn't readily admitted. Okay? So the odds of any child of a harlot being claimed by his or her father was pretty near zero. Now, illegitimate children of harlots were the lowest of the low within Israelite society and most other societies as well. They were ignored, scorned, had no rights, received no schooling. They were social outcasts. They lived miserable, poverty-stricken lives. However, it seems that Gilead had an attack of conscience. And he must have made it clear to his legitimate sons that this Yiftach was to be accorded family status, such that he would even inherit some of the family's wealth. Gilead's legitimate sons weren't particularly happy about this. Not only would Yiftak take away from their portion, but it also brought this social misfit too near the family, of this family of aristocrats, actually, for comfort. You know, I suspect we all know of family situations where a well-to-do person with children gets divorced or maybe is widowed and then remarries to someone who has children from a previous marriage thus producing a blended family of biological and stepchildren and often the natural children of the affluent parent don't much like the idea of sharing an inheritance with their stepbrothers and stepsisters this sort of thing is kind of an age-old problem Yiftak left the area of Gilead and he went to a place called Tov. What does Tov mean? Good. Went to a place called Good. And there he formed a gang. That sounds like a good thing to do in a place called Good. (laughs) And this is very much, he did very much like this man that we met just about a chapter before named Gaal. Jephthah must have gained quite a reputation as a fighter and a leader of fighters because he would soon be in demand 
to rescue Israel from yet another oppression of foreigners. Well, verse 4 sets the story now into motion. The oppressive Ammonites make war against Israel. And the council of the leaders of Gilead go to Yiftok to ask him to come home and lead lead Gilead against Ammon. Naturally, Yiftok isn't immediately keen to come to the aid of the people who have banished him and treated him so badly. Without doubt, some of his estranged family members were part of that very council and among those who approached him. Equally without doubt, Yiftok must have been their last resort because it took the swallowing of a lot of pride to approach Yiftok and seek his help. Not only that, but the price they were going to have to pay for his acceptance of the challenge was going to be huge and it was going to be humiliating. Jephthah would become the undisputed head over all of Gilead. The people of Gilead and the sons of Gilead who had banished him, would now bow down to the son of a common harlot. Yiftok made them repeat their promise to him and then made a covenant with him by invoking Jehovah's name to seal the deal. Even that wasn't good enough. Jephthah accompanied the council of elders back to their army headquarters at Mitzpah and in a religious ceremony they were compelled to repeat his demands, which they again accepted with a public vow. Well, with the agreement now publicly and spiritually acknowledged, Yiftak proceeded with his assigned mission. Now, surprisingly, we see that this is a pretty clever man. He's not just some ignorant street thug. So Yiftak's first step is to try to negotiate with the Ammonites. And he tried to reason with them in an effort to avoid war and loss of life on both sides if it was going to be possible. I suspect he knew there was very little chance of success, but it was worth the try. And he showed himself to be a pretty skilled negotiator, very intellectual, a clear thinker, but also a tough guy who doesn't back down so easy. And working through messengers, he communicates a simple question a loaded question to the king of the Ammonites. What do you want? Why are you here coming to my land to fight? This message makes a couple of things clear. Yiftak didn't represent himself as a hired gun, but rather as a patriot. My land. Second, he made it clear that as far as he was concerned, there was no reasonable dispute over this land. It belonged to Israel. And in verse 13, we get the Ammonites' response. Israel took this land from us, and so we lay claim to it, we want it back. And the king says that the wrongful taking took place during the exodus from Egypt. And he goes on to describe the area he contends is his. To the south, from the Arnon River, which was the border between Moab, and to the south, and Ammon to the north, and then the northern border over the disputed territory was described as the Yabok. Jabok. The eastern boundary, the the river, Jordan River. The king of Ammon says, give me back the land and there won't be a war. Now things are going to get a little bit complicated for us and very historical, so hang in there with me because this is really relevant. The king of Ammon's claim is nonsense. And it had no basis in fact. The fact is that the Ammonites had never held this particular territory that they wanted back, supposedly, because the Ornon River served as the border between Moab and the Amorites. Amorites, not Ammonites. Okay, I'll speak as distinctly as I can because those two are pretty close together. The Amorites and the Ammonites are in no way related. So Yiftok sent his messengers back to the king of the Ammonites with what we find written in verses 15 through 27. Here's the gist of what he says. He says, Ammonites, you have no standing for your claim. 
And I'm going to remind you of just how everything occurred in Israel's journey from Egypt to Canaan. Historically, this is what happened. Israel did not capture the territory of Moab or Ammon. What happened, says Jephthah, is that during their exodus, Israel arrived at Kadesh and camped there. Okay, Kadesh, down in this area. Here it is right here, Kadesh. Below the Dead Sea and to the west. And in order to go any further... In their journey, Moses followed standard protocol of that era and he sent messengers ahead of them to the king of Edom asking, could he travel through their territory? The king refused. So after marching all the way around Edom, Moses sent a similar message to the king of Moab, which was here. But the king of Moab also refused. So in addition to marching around Edom, Israel journeyed far to the east and to the north. They marched around Moab to avoid any trouble with them. The Arnon River was Moab's recognized northern border. And Israel stayed north of that border to respect the king of Moab's wishes. Next, Israel sent a messenger to Sihon, who was king of the Amorites whose royal city was Heshbon. Sichon not only refused their request, but he got very hostile. He actually went to war against Israel, just for their request. Israel had threatened and done nothing. They hadn't threatened, rather. They'd done nothing against Sichon. And they had already proved that they would honor the territorial integrity of nations or territories that lay in their path to Canaan. The result of this attack from the Amorites was that God favored Israel, Sihon was defeated, and Israel took the territory that belonged to the Amorites. Again, Amorites, not Ammonites. And that territory is now here what's called Gilead. That was the history. Now, let's back up a little bit. Saying that Israel did not Take the Moabites' land from them was a critical piece of information. Because Moab actually had a much stronger claim to their former land than the Ammonites did. The Amorites were a very aggressive and warlike people that came down far from the, from the north, from Mesopotamia. And they had come down and conquered Moab and taken Moab's land from them. When Israel fought the Amorites, led by Sihon, king of the Amorites, and won, then of course they won whatever the Amorites owned. The former territory of Moab was among those possessions. Further, in keeping with Numbers 21-24, Israel made no claim on any of Ammon's territory. Moses had been instructed by God to respect the territorial boundaries of Edom, Moab, and Ammon. Why? Because Edom was the descendants of Jacob's brother Esau, and Moab and Ammon were the descendants of Lot, Abraham's nephew. God did not want war among them. So to summarize, Jephthah's argument against the king of the Ammonites' claim to the land of Gilead, he says this. First, due to our God's instructions, Israel had no interest in conquering or even bothering the people of Ammon. The only, we only respectfully ask to pass through that area to get to Canaan. But because the king of the Amorites, King Sihon, who ruled over the people of Ammon and Moab... Because he went to war with Israel out of mistrust and paranoia, and because Israel won that war, whatever land the Amorites owned now belonged to Israel. That was his logic. In fact, the land that Ammon claimed for itself had never belonged at any time to the Ammonites. It always belonged to the Amorites. The the Ammonites just lived there. So now it belonged to Israel because they took it from the Amorites. The second argument he makes is theological. 
Okay, and that argument begins in verse 23. 23. Yiftoch says that since the God of Israel enabled Israel to have victory over the Amorites, are you actually thinking that Israel ought to turn around now and give that land to the king of Ammon? Because obviously, if the God of Israel gave the land to Israel, Ammon is certainly not going to be able to expel Israel now, and Israel has no interest in giving it up. In verse 24, we get a very good example of the ancient oriental mind at work. And we see how the people of that era viewed the role of the gods in this regard. And the logic goes like this. Jehovah is the God of Israel. Jehovah enabled his people to win the land of the Amorites. Therefore, the land belonging to Israel's God belongs to Israel. Chemosh is the God of Ammon. Whatever land Chemosh has enabled his people, the Ammonites, to win is all they ought to have. Why would the God of Israel want to voluntarily give up his land under his control to another God? Pretty good logic. Another argument is presented in verse 26. Yiftok says, Israel has dwelled in Heshbon and all of its surrounding towns and villages near the Arnon River for three centuries. So now, after 300 years, you suddenly decide you want this land? Where have you been for the last 300 years? Now, I took you on this history lesson. Because it's there. But also to make a point. It's obvious that the king of Ammon had no legitimate claim over the land he wanted to fight Israel for. He simply wanted it. And so came up with some convoluted reasoning as to why Israel ought to give it up, move out, and turn it over to him. Historically, Ammon had no legal claim to it recognized by anybody. Theologically, Ammon had no religious claim to it. Even from a conquest standpoint, Ammon had no claim to the land. They had never conquered it. They would never ruled over it. They would never possessed it. But they want it now. See, we see a replay of this scenario concerning Israel and foreign claims to their land today in 2008 and as I will repeat until your ears ring with the words history is circular and we are reliving the time of the judges right now you see Yiftok doesn't make the point by the way that nobody ought to be upset over this land of Gilead now controlled by Israel. He doesn't even say that nobody ought to challenge Israel's right to Gilead. He simply says that of all people, Ammon hasn't got any dog in this fight. Because it has never owned the land at any point in history. On the other hand, might the Amorites who Joshua defeated, have a reason to want to reopen the subject and fight Israel again to get that land back? Sure. After all, it was the Amorites who lost to Israel. But Ammon? Nope. They never held that land at any time. Now, if Ammon was honest, and his king, that king had sent a message to, to Yiftok and said, well, we're conquerors, and we think we're more powerful than you, and we're going to take you on, and we're going to take that land from you. Well, that's a whole other issue. In time-honored tradition, that's actually how the boundaries of all the nations of this earth have been formed and changed and are going to continue to move around through history, through conquest, through war. But instead, the king of Ammon says, they have a legitimate claim to Gilead. It was their land at one time. Israel has no right to it. This is just a false statement. Today, we'll conclude with this. We have a people called the Palestinians that make this same kind of false claim on Israel's land. There has never in all history been an Arab nation or people group called the Palestinians. It's a media and Arab League invention. 
To say that Israel is occupying their land is the exact same kind of bogus claim that the king of Ammon is making to Yishtak. The so-called Palestinians, whose faces that we see plastered on our TV screens every evening, never even existed prior to 1967. They're just a mixed group of refugees from several of the Arab nations who came to Israel to find work and stayed. Then, when the Arab League made war on Israel, those Arab guest workers fled to refugee camps outside of Israel where they were then infiltrated by Yasser Arafat's gang of thugs. And then eventually these refugees were given legitimacy by the anti-Semitic news media and UN. That's how it happened. But unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be a Yiftach for Israel to turn to today. Israel doesn't seem to have anymore a leader who will tell the Palestinians to go to the land where their God, Allah, holds sway. Because Israel is the land of Yehovah, the God of Israel. Israel has no one with the courage, it seems, anymore to face the cameras and the Palestinians and the United States government and say that the Palestinians have no legitimate claim over Israel's land. They never were a nation. They never were a distinct or identifiable people group. They never possessed the land that Israel now possesses. They never conquered the land that Israel now possesses. And thus they need to take their claims and problems elsewhere. The Palestinians are taking precisely the same tact as the king of Ammon. Sometimes I wonder if they didn't read this and say this is a good way to do it. <clears throat> Israel has tried and tried and tried to find a peaceful solution. But the only solution as far as the Palestinian leadership is concerned is complete capitulation. Exactly the same demand as the king of Ammon made to Jephthah. So Jephthah realizes there's no hope here for, to continue negotiations. If Ammon wants Gilead, come and try and take it. Next week we're going to see the Lord anoint Jephthah with his Holy Spirit and then Jephthah seek God's favor in the coming battle. Unfortunately, this son of a prostitute, now a military general, makes a very rash vow to the Lord to try and effect victory and the results were devastating. We'll look at that next time.